Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 113. Now this is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu. Thank you for listening in. Once again, I'm not alone on the mic. I'm rolling with the homie, Musakalenga. What's up, bruh? Hey man, how you doing? Good to be back as always. Uh, looking forward to this great show. Lots to discuss, lots on the go. Um, so I'm glad to be back again. But uh, hello Africa, tell me how you doing? Absolutely, my guy. You were the butt last time. You're the homie this week. We're doing well. Absolutely. Next I'll be the Sophia. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we'll explain that a bit later, but stick yeah. around. <laughs> They're probably thinking, Sophia, no, no, don't worry. We'll connect the dots for you. Hang in there, folks. As Musa said, it's definitely a jam-packed episode this time round. We'll be discussing South Africa's diabolical data breach, the largest in the country's history. We'll be touching on some interesting news, a partnership between Kwese and Vice. Uh, we'll even be talking about Nigeria's latest DSTV competitor and then the embarrassing scandal involving the likes of SAP and of course KPMG right here in South Africa, implicated in the Gupta Leak saga. All that and more coming up next. But first... This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Ask an African. It's a new standalone innovation we've been working on at the Jam Lab Accelerator. The one I told you to look out for, well, here it is. We've already started beta testing it. It basically involves letting you in on the magic that we experience in producing the African Tech Roundup podcast, as well as uh, much of the other content that we create right here on our platform. Are you intrigued? Well, good. Stick around till the end of the show because uh, we'll be telling you all about it then. In the meantime, though, heads up, I'll be shamelessly inserting not-so-subtle subliminal messaging throughout the show. Uh, starting right now, Ask an African. <laughs> Cue the music. <laughs> we got this, man. We got this. Let's jump into some of the more topical highlights that have emerged in the last couple of weeks uh, right here on Africa's tech and innovation scene, starting first with the fact that the German software maker SAP has reported itself to U.S. authorities after admitting to paying $6.7 million to companies that have ties with South Africa's controversial Gupta family. Uh, they did this to secure contracts with state-owned companies. Um, SAP has, of course, been accused of appointing a company called CAD House on a consultancy basis, agreeing to pay the company 10% in quote, commission, if they help them secure uh, a, a Transnet contract. Now, Transnet is, uh, of course, the South African government-owned rail port and pipeline company. Goodness me, Musa. This is a this is a shocker, man, but it's kind of like, uh, it feels like they're being preemptive. I'm pretty sure there's a lot more to it than what we know, but by re reporting themselves, I think they're kind of trying to seek retribution, but other major multinationals that have also been implicated are Neotel, T-Systems, um, Software AG, McKinsey, and of course, KPMG, and all of them taking a lot of flames in the media at the moment. I'm telling you, a lot of them losing a lot of business with uh, major accounts they hold, uh, basically saying, we can't work with you anymore. Uh, you know, SAP has come out apologizing to the South African people for wrongdoing in, in, this, in, in this scenario. They've come out saying that they've started uh, disciplinary proceedings against some of the, the people who were involved in the scandal, many of whom are already on, on uh, a sort of forced leave at the company. Uh, you, you know what sort of stands out for me in terms of like a moral to a story, as it were? Uh, this is a sort of roll call of, you know, some of the most, quote unquote, honorable institutions of our time. And it's frustrating to me that Africa continues to be associated uh, reputationally with the, this notion of, you know, bad governance and, and poor corporate management, political unrest and even violence and, and poor health and the truth is the world's messed up, and this is proof. A lot of the, the worst stuff that happens on our continent, um, the lack of accountability, the poor governance, is enabled by some of the biggest corporate names in the world. And I think it's time we all woke up to this. We've said on the show before, you can't trust anybody. Everyone deserves a second look. No one should claim that just because they've been around for 50 years, you know, by right they can command our respect or even, you know, our trust. Yeah, and I think the other thing for me that is quite uh, 
the observation that I found quite interesting is the is the way that these companies have handled this whole thing, right? So I do not think that they've been punitive enough with the leaders and or executives that were making decisions throughout this entire period, number one. Um, and number two, that the precedent that they're setting relating to what that means going forward, because I think with all of these matters, we're just getting the tip of the iceberg. You know, I really think we're just being exposed to just the top of this thing. And beneath the iceberg for me is what is a challenge and what the problem is, is what, what rot, what other things are happening beneath the surface and how many of those things will actually eventually be fixed because um, right now people being placed on forced leave is not a punishment for what they did it's simply just saying let's try and kind of move you out of the out of the media eye so we can try and deal with it but they're not punishing people for the mis uh, the, the mis uh, uh, misinterpretation misinformation and misguiding that they've done let alone the bad decisions that they've made so for me that is more of the issue um, and the game that's being played now around covering up and you know there's been a lot of media discussion around the newly appointed uh, especially at KPMD, the newly appointed uh, uh, lady in charge who happens to be a black female, um, and the narrative there around kind of there's a mess to be uh, to be fixed, let's, let's kind of palm it off to a black female, um, and hopefully they'll fix it. If they don't, we can always say, you see, we gave them a chance type thing. So there's just so much behind it as well um, that is just uncomfortable, um, and that comes from the truth being revealed, and I think it's only just a, a microcosm of what actually is going on, to be very honest. The hypocrisy I'm sensing, you know, from, from corporate South Africa, I mean, you've got corporate leaders at the biggest brands, corporate brands in the country, open letter after open letter decrying how poorly run the country is and, and, and how, you know, the ANC needs to sort itself out and start running the country correctly. And I'm not here to promote poor government on their part, but I mean, goodness, the last five odd years has been just like if you just tune in to talk radio or some of the quote-unquote independent media sources out there and and all these heads of corporate posturing around you know this needs to happen and this needs to happen where are they now all quiet of course they're quiet they do announce that they can't work with kpmg anymore and everything but i mean they're certainly not coming out as strong or as emphatically about just how wrong and how dangerous some of the stuff we're finding out about some of these companies has been. And by the way, if you're new to the saga, you know, just Google Gupta leaks, um, because really a, a bunch of emails that leaked is what started this whole thing. And what it really feels like now is people being sorry they were caught um, over being you know, genuinely repentant or even intent in, in doing better going forward. Yeah, I mean, look, I must say um, one organization that I've kind of been tracking their responses has been Business Leadership South Africa. Um, and they've been trying to have um, quite a moral and defined standpoint about some of these issues. They've expelled people like KPMG from their membership um, and they've been quite vocal in the media around kind of what they're trying to uh, push forward and what they call their contract with South Africa. And one of those pillars of the contract is around this issue of corruption. So, um, yes, I do believe that there's been a lot of posturing around people in the past to complain and write open letter after open letter. But I think just to kind of give credit where credit is due, my observation has been that business leaders from South Africa has really been flying the flag. So I say kudos from that perspective. Fair fair i mean you've you've obviously been in the trenches uh you're right, constantly rubbing shoulders with the people in question i feel like the measures being taken to hold the companies and the individual individuals uh involved to account needs to sort of match the the seriousness of of what they've done Th these people need to go to jail basically yeah. we need jail time here and if it doesn't happen well then we know what's up we really do know what's up the punishment must befit the crime is what they say i think absolutely so yeah no there we go but um let's talk about the biggest data dump in South African history, uh, at least to date. Let's hope one's not on the go as we speak. Um, listen, a, a certain Troy Hunt, he's a, a Microsoft regional director. They call him a Microsoft most valuable professional for developer security. It's, it's quite a fancy term for do that Microsoft reckons is, is quite a big deal in terms of online security and so on. Well, he happens to be the researcher who founded the website Have. I been pawned.com and that's have I been and pawned is P W N E D.com. It's a site that allows you to, you know, just visit and pop, pop in your, your email address, uh, click a button and it'll tell you if uh, your, the email address you're testing has actually been compromised in any data breach. As it happens, uh, one of my Gmail addresses was in fact uh, compromised in, in the Dropbox and Tumblr uh, breaches that happened uh, a while ago. I, I've known this for a while, but yeah, so he, you know, so Troy, 
Troy Hunt happens to be that guy. And um, on October the 17th, he tweeted his South African followers the following. I have a very large breach titled Master Deeds. Uh, it's names, genders, ethnicities, home ownership, uh, looks, government. Any ideas, uh, Troy asks. As it happens, he's managed to uncover 27 gigabytes of sensitive information, including people's 13-digit ID numbers, personal income, age, employment history, uh, company directorships, and it's been checked by numerous people who've, who, who've now since verified that this thing is legit, he's not crying wolf. And so, officially, South Africa can now boast uh, an even bigger hack to the stokinical one that um, compromised 1.6 million unique email addresses. This one's so much bigger. And even more disturbingly, Probably a, a breach of a government database. Yo, Musa. Yeah, um, in the words of Toby Shapshank, be afraid, be very afraid. I think this this draws a spotlight to this notion about online uh, security and identity. Um, and I think once again, it's a reminder from a consumer perspective about the nature um, of the sensitivity of the online space and the fragility of some of the information that you had. Um, both you, Andile and I went to Have I Been Pawned? Thank goodness I haven't been pawned. But at the same time, I was pretty certain that I had because of what I do online. Um, and if anything, as I said, this probably should be a great warning to consumers and to be more diligent about what they're doing and how they conduct themselves, passwords, et cetera, et cetera, um, because this is real, man. This is real. I suppose in this sort of environment where startups are a dime a dozen, there's constant interest in signing you up for new services and, and sort of plugging your personal data into things to deliver information, whether it's a value through an app, you know, we're all doing it in some shape or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do it here in, in, in requesting your, your data for our newsletter and stuff like that. I think you're right. We, we need to think a little more carefully about one, the value of our personal information um, and, and start to treat it with more respect. Um, but also kind of makes me sad that we have to approach this matter with a great deal more um, perhaps cynicism than we did before because people are trying to get us. That's just a fact at this point. Yeah, and the other thing I'm thinking about, right? So, I mean, <laughs> when we went on your Have I Been Pawned, it was like, it was Dropbox and it was, what was the other one? It was Tumblr. Oh, Dropbox and Tumblr. Those are not small brands. It's not. Well, they were at the time I signed up. Sure, but it's not like some dodgy company that's in the backwater somewhere where you're not going to be able to find them. Um, so my question is now, kind of retrospectively do you actually have a legal claim against those organizations for being uh, for having pawned your data and i wonder whether that's the case because what's the objective of having a site where you can actually see that and and if you do does that apply in all jurisdictions including us here in, in africa um which i think is an interesting notion because what do you do with that information or is it just good to know so I'm really excited about the imminent enforcement of the uh, Protection of Personal Information Act. Um, so, I mean, to answer your question, um, South Africa, I'd argue, uh, relative to most of the, the rest of the continent, is attempting to get up to speed with you know more developed regimes in, in places like the European Union and, and America. And, and, and yeah, for that reason, I'm quite excited about these laws coming online because it does speak to how well protected you are when in fact you are not just compromised, but you know you are disadvantaged monetarily or otherwise um, from breaches and, and related uh, issues. Right now, I think broadly speaking, African citizens are arguably more vulnerable than many places in the world. And yeah, policymakers listening to us right now, look into it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, stark reminder, but a reminder nonetheless. Yeah, it's not encouraging, in fact, that this is a likely a government database that was breached, in which case, yeah, I don't know. They clearly don't have a handle on things. Let's hope um, the next one no, doesn't happen too soon. Well, let's get past Andela's successful 40 million Series C. Well, I mean, let's be fair. This is good news. They come through a very well PR'd Series B, which involved the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative coming on board with some money. Um, we didn't really like the fact that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife chose to to invest via a foundation. As you know, some people feel that signals uh, a weak sort of capitalist intent. But be that as it may, real money, real money got into their coffers. And the Series C this round, term round it has been led by a friend of the show, Pule Taukobong, who is the founding partner of CRE Venture Capital. We've had him on the show. He led the 40 million Series C funding round. For that reason, I think it's it's quite notable. They, of course, um, headquartered right here in, uh, in, in South Africa. Uh, and he gets a seat on Andela's board as a result of his, his work in, in putting this deal together. It brings together the likes of DBL Partners, uh, 
GV, Spark Capital, Ampla, of course, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Salesforce Ventures, and of course, TLCom Capital. So well done to you, Andela. At this point, everyone knows you've got the juice and well done in landing the next tranche of money you need to extend your runway, hopefully to like massive success. Absolutely. And uh, maybe just a, an aside, also joining uh, Taugubong on the Andela board is Julia Gillard, a former Australian Prime Minister and Amplo uh, board partner, and uh, Omabolo Johnson, who's a senior partner at TL.com, and a former Minister of Communication Technology Nigeria, which um, has some representation from Africa, which goes a long way um, in addressing some of the conversations we've been having around protecting the interests of, of local ventures and investments um, to be able to kind of be guardians so that we don't get into a situation where Western money becomes aid. So that's good to see as well well spotted there uh, musa i mean i love the idea of africa focus being maintained from the very top that's definitely encouraging yep absolutely so i mean congratulations big up take off our heads to you well done yep so we didn't quite skip along as fast as i thought <laughs> on this one but um, that's all good um let's talk about quese and vice quest of course is the econet media subsidiary there the multimedia well i think they're sort of becoming a multimedia giant um, uh, slash broadcaster slash new media player slash streaming service slash all these uh, good things that we then you know, get us excited about in terms of like fun tech and entertainment tech and all those good things. Vice Media happens to be a brand I, re- I truly respect. Um, their hustle is in terms of execution beyond reproach. I know people have issues with their journalism and other things or their style or whatever, but um, just in terms of like what they've done in building a new media platform within the sort of news lifestyle genre has been quite impressive. I mean, so I think of them up there with the likes of BuzzFeed in terms of like new media empires and of course locally um, the, the likes of Iroko as peers to to that sort of level of hustle. That said, Vice Media and Econet Media recently announced a new joint venture to launch uh, Vice into Sub-Saharan Africa next year. They're calling it Kwese Vice. Um, and the plan is for Vice and Econet to open a new bureau and production studio headquartered in Johannesburg. We tweeted earlier this week that um, digital news interests on the continent better sit up and watch this one because I have a feeling it's going to do well. I think it's great, man. I think, uh, you know, coming from a long history of um, of trying to deal with some very backdated broadcasting um, uh, corporations, uh, this is a very exciting view going forward because I think over and above um, the joint venture that follows a lot of stuff that Quest has been investing in from an infrastructure perspective um, and the Econet group itself, um, I'm really excited that they're going to be bringing younger um, and more fresher creatives and journalists that understand the African story and they're going to be able to tailor make kind of programs that speak to the right cultural nodes that are going to you know inspire and that kind of thing. Um, so for me, this kind of cross-platform approach to being able to give content that is going to be essentially around the clock, 24-7 content about Africans for Africans. I think that's a great thing. Um, and I'm really hoping that they're going to be successful, but you're quite right. I think it's a huge, huge signal to the multi-choices, the SABCs of the world, that this is not a, um, this is not a game that's going to be won by looking into the past and you know doting on your, on your previous success. It's going to be trying to disrupt the future and bring the creatives and the talent that can produce content that can be on these platforms. So I'm super excited. I spent some time with uh, Vodacom yesterday, um, and they've also got lots of plans, Vodacom being a, a a mobile network, lots of plans in this particular space around cracking the the, the, the content culture code that's going to unlock money and revenue. So this is a great thing. Uh, I think it's really cool. Yeah. And of course, look, Vice um, will be distributing their very popular Viceland content uh, through Quese. But I love that it's not just about you know repackaging stuff that's already working elsewhere in the world. They're, they're committed to sort of uh, building local production and, and telling local stories. And also what's quite interesting, it, I mean, they'll be creating programming for both Quese Vice's channels on the network, but also third-party platforms. And you know, like Vice is massive on, on things like YouTube, for example, where typically incumbents like DSTV, you know, national broadcasters like the, the SABC, and perhaps, you know, publishers who are originally traditionally perhaps a, a, a print struggle with this idea of third-party platforming because they're still stuck in this idea that we need to bring people to us and and put things behind a paywall that people pay you know for access to and and i think sometimes that thinking prevents people from understanding what you're talking about the culture that's going to build around digital media and its consumption going forward big up to Quesa and to vice we'll be watching them very closely meanwhile in nigeria tstv 
a proudly Nigerian uh, DSTV competitor, is sort of settling into their role as the quote-unquote DSTV killer of Nigeria. The Nigerian government has already sort of given its vote of confidence in TSTV and perhaps uh, betrayed its desire to see DSTV dethroned as the king of cable by offering TSTV a three-year tax holiday. Um, Yeah, I've heard some people say, Musa, that patriotism isn't necessarily a solid strategy in terms of growth and indeed uh, working your way to profitability. It's an interesting statement. So patriotism um, removed from things like collaboration, um, I could agree, is not a solid uh, um, way to try and make commercial uh, value, especially in the broadcast space. Um, I think TSTV trying to compete in places like sports channels and uh, and programming that's going to be more accessible to a younger audience um, is going to have to understand a lot of things before they get the commercial value right. So the learning curve, I believe, is going to be extremely steep. Um, I think the notion around supporting local broadcasters or, or patriotic approach to supporting local broadcasters is theoretically right, but I think the application thereof to make sure that that support translates into commercial value and a success is where, um, where the nuance is. And I think that's where, for me, the collaboration approach would have been better. Um, hence, when you look like a deal um, you know, between Quesa and Vice, you can see the mutual benefit for the end consumer. And I love it's Quesa Vice. It's not the other way around. Yeah, it's not Vice Quesa. You know what I mean? So, so TSTV, I think, is going to face similar principles in their approach. So um, through your tax holiday, fantastic. But there's a lot to be considered from the content creation to the content uh, distribution to the monetization thereof. Um, and because they're starting in Nigeria, Nigeria is quite an um, idiosyncratic market right so will they be able to scale that easily enough to be able to get the value over this three years so i think there's a lot to be considered i mean in principle you know me i'm a patriot so i support it but um when you do that in you know in in a a vacuum without considering other factors and one of the big ones for me is collaboration i think there might be something to be considered there you are up against you know africa's biggest tech firm with a current market cap of over 100 billion dollars really deep pockets uh, licensing agreements for arguably the best Western content available right now. There's the big elephant in the room of do you have license to broadcast you know, English Premier League content, which I know Nigerians are crazy about. You know, So my question to you, Nigeria, is how great is TSTV? How well does it stand up to DSTV? Aside from the fact that you wanted to see it do well, I think everybody knows at this point that I'm a huge Kwese fan. I don't like everything they do. I'm, I'm not necessarily like kissing their feet or anything. If I if they do something that sucks, I'll oh, you know I'll definitely say it on the show and all that. But I'm rooting for them not least because you know they're affiliated to Econet, and of course Econet is run and you know founded and run by you know big brothers Strive Masiwa from Zimbabwe. I mean, there's something to that, like you say. But is it delivering? on what you need and want out of a broadcaster, out of uh, an entertainment tech play. Uh, Let us know. DSTV versus TSTV. What do you think, Nigeria? Give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup or drop us an email or a voice note via hello at africantechroundup.com. To something important that launched in South Africa, Uprise.Africa. They're the new South African equity crowdfunding platform that we we spoke about on the show some months ago. Um, they've since managed to get all the regulatory clearance they need to, to actually launch their service. Now, essentially what they're doing is bringing to market pre-vetted um, startups that we as the public or investment community can now invest in directly. So what they're out to do is basically democratize investments in startups. So since they launched a few days ago, uh, we, you know, we're on the site as we speak. Um, yeah, we see a, a business called Storied, another one called Jobvine Global. Uh, Storied is looking for 3 million rand. That's their goal. And Jobvine is looking for 3 million. Um, yeah, so basically they've, they've opened... They've opened their portal up to startups that might uh, th- that might want to raise funds in this way through crowdfunding. Um, I actually registered earlier uh, to see how that works. You know, you log in and they invite you to sort of upload your pitch deck and your business plan and and, and say what you're looking for, etc. And then they and you give them the permission basically to vet you and see whether you're an appropriate candidate to float to their community of investors. And of course, if you're an investor. They also vet you to to make sure that you you know what you're doing and and then you have access to these deals and we all see how well they do right now both of them it has to be said since they've been posted it seems they've been here for three days um, have not 
yet landed any investment. Question, Musa. Um, we've talked about uh, alternative investment vehicles and, and the need for us to sort of innovate in that space as a continent. Are you excited about this? Do you think it will work? Do you think it's good for the ecosystem? And three, would you list your startup on this platform? Why or why not? So those are huge questions, but yeah. <laughs> huge, and there's, there's a lot to each one of those questions. Um, so are you excited first? I am. I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously excited because I think for an idea like this to work, there has to be a convergence of market readiness with a supply of businesses and companies you can invest in. So I think they've done a really good job of putting together the partners that can vet the businesses that are there. But I'm surprised that currently on their site, there are only two, as an example, right? Um, because that for me means, and they, and we spoke about them a, a couple of months ago. Yeah, they said they would launch with more, but it seems maybe, I mean, maybe they, I'm assuming here, right? Giving them the, the benefit of the doubt that um, they've since been given all the, you know, the requirements that, regulatory requirements that they need to meet to make sure that these companies are well vetted, et cetera, and, and meet that criteria they've maybe had to reevaluate you know some of the others that they initially thought they would have launched with by now um and i i have a feeling they'll come online soon and by the way we're going to have at least one of the co-founders of this initiative on the show at some point soon so i don't want to say too much and 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 get it wrong but yeah it, it does it is interesting that you point as you point out that there's only two at launch where you know it was reported before that you know or at least they told us before that they would launch with more Correct. So, so that's the first thing is that uh, the convergence of market readiness and the supply or the you know the availability of businesses to invest in, I think, will be quite an important thing. Um, so, so cautiously excited. Would I list my 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 startup there? I don't think so. No, not not yet. And why? Uh, for a few reasons. I think given where our startups are currently, the platform currently seems very local um, and our businesses are global, right? So um, the starting point as far as getting funding from a, in a local context and the complications of uh, liquidity, dilution, et cetera, et cetera, at this stage for us wouldn't make sense. Um, secondly, the trajectory that we're trying to, to, to follow to go from being a, a local business in, in, in Africa to being a, a global business and the speed at which we need, need to do that, I'm not too sure would be able to get much value from the platform personally if my businesses were focused um more locally maybe south africa sub-saharan africa probably probably different answer um but i think for me i think the value would get right now would be minimal um and even the upside as far as the the the, the investment uh, uh amounts um would not complement our ambitions as a business so that's why but i, I said i don't think everybody is in the same situation so when we have them on the show, um, one of the things I'm going to ask them is is basically there's there's two ways this sort of thing is perceived in in more developed markets. You you list on on similar services like this when either you can't get the money organically, or two the PR value of being on these platforms actually lends to to your strategy in some way. And in in the case of the former. Um, I've heard investors say that it can be a worrying sign to them when when they see a, a company uh, resort to crowdfunding for for funding because it might signal that you know they they basically fail to do so in other ways and maybe there's something wrong with the team they weren't able to get it together and or there might be problematic fundamentals in the business that made it uh, you know made other people leave you know the deal on the table etc so uh, it'll be interesting to, to to find out from you know the folks at uprise.africa how they're navigating the space and of course the difference here is and when I say here, I mean on the continent, maybe in the context specific to them, South Africa, is that uh, we are in a relatively nascent ecosystem where I suppose every little bit matters or every little bit, bit helps in terms of just helping startups have access to funding. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, that was one of the things while you were talking that also popped into mind is that I'm, I must also be frank with the fact that I'm probably speaking from a place of privilege um, as far as um, how far I think I can extend my network and, you know, my ex relative experience in the space, et cetera, et cetera, which I wouldn't think necessarily is applicable to every startup business in South Africa. So my view is probably tainted by that, by, by, by that, that kind of what I refer to as privilege. Um, and therefore, if you're looking at wholesale impact and wholesale um development i think it's a great thing um you know for someone who's built something that's potentially solving a, a, a problem in, in, in the economy and another option to be able to get them funding i think that's great you know so uh, my answer definitely was peppered with my own viewpoint and my own privilege so just to disclaim ask an african 
<laughs> yeah, ask him, ask him, ask him. So I've only snuck in one so far, so don't get mad at me at all. So anyway, um, moving on now to, uh, I, you know, something I'd like to highlight from a, a video we shared, not a video, a piece of content we shared uh, during past week. Um, it was an interview I had with uh, Yannick Lefang. Yannick Lefang is the founder and CEO of Kasi Insight, a research and advisory firm that provides, you know, African consumer data and actionable insights. Um, and so, you know, I had to sit down with him at uh, Afrobytes Tech Conference 2017, and he unpacked a, a significant amount of insight around the importance of data in helping Africa-focused uh, investors, b- business people on the continent actually make solid decisions and, and really just, you know, succeed on the continent. And so it got such an incredible response. We thought we might just talk about it on the show. One of the discussions that the, the, the podcast spawned on social media is the issue of total addressable market. So Yannick shared a real-world example of a client of his who approached them uh, you know, having made a lot of assumptions about a market, about you know market entry, they had calculated the market size based on macroeconomic statistics that they gleaned from you know reports they bought and stuff like that, and publicly available stuff. And something didn't sort of ring true when when these people were making all these projections and you know, suggesting what might be in it for them if they launched a product into a certain space. You know, I really encourage you to listen to the to the whole thing. So I'm really sort of cutting it short. Go check it out at africantechroundup.com. It's in the quick tech chats uh, playlist. Uh, go check it out and hear the whole thing. But uh, the point was, I mean, Yannick then convinced this guy to have Gassi Insight do a proper evaluation of this market, extract proper data, you know, uh, you know, do some market research and, and discovered that the, the total addressable market of, of this particular client was actually many, many, many times smaller than previously thought. And so, it, you know, it led to this debate, like, on the continent, should we promote the the use of insight and data to make decision or business decisions or investment decisions, or should we rely on you know instinct? Is it a matter of both? You know, what do you think, Musa? Yeah, I think this is a this is a really fascinating topic, and I I, I my view is, is is simple but complicated. So. I'm always a proponent of saying if the data is available, absolutely the data should be a reference. But we have to realize that in our context, nine out of ten times the data is not available. So you're extrapolating or you're getting different related, unrelated data points and you're trying to you know, create a picture. Unfortunately, the collection, centralization and availability of data that is easy and accessible enough for entrepreneurs to use is just not there, right? So that ecosystem doesn't exist the way we would like it to exist. Um, you know, there are people that are getting better at it and, and, and the McKinsey's and the extensions of the world are starting to create. Did you just mention McKinsey? The Yes. <laughs> the large consultancies of this world. Oh, the, yeah, the, the, the guys that are selling consulting services um, um, have, have started getting better at selling this kind of information. Um, we can still argue you know, that it's, it's relatively inaccessible because you still have to pay a lot for it. But also Yannick would argue that it's also not actionable a lot of the time. It's, you know, it still requires massaging and interpretation, etc. Correct. So, so if we're going to bring this down to grassroots level, um, we're saying the data is not accessible. If the data is accessible, it's probably not not contextually relevant um, and therefore should we be proposing that people should look at this as a, as a way to solve problems so I think no then you know if you're in Africa and you're an African and you've been able to start a business um, it, the TIM or the total addressable market should be secondary to what I call the IPC, the immediate paying customer. So if you can find someone that's willing to pay you for the service or solution, that's probably a better thing to focus on than trying to quantify the size of the opportunity. Um, and there's lots of examples of, of, of really successful African entrepreneurs that have just done that, has found their IPC um, and been able to sell to enough of those IPCs and eventually they were able to frame up a market that was big enough um, and that they could sell to. Now, does that hold true for someone that's coming in from outside without the instinct, without the immediate understanding, without the knowledge, without the native view of this is going to work not because there's data to support it but because I know what it's like to as you said take public transport or buy um, you know buy a meal an informal meal on the side of the road from that to the grandmother you know those are kind of native experiences which nobody's got data to quantify but um, if you don't come from the continent and from the context it's really difficult for you to tap into that so and sometimes you can be from here but you're just out of touch as well with with a certain context in which case um, and, and this is me sort of making an argument for the existence of, of, of firms like Yannix, uh, like Gassi Insights. It is important for you to admit when you might have a gap in 
in understanding or insight. Absolutely. And your context is also important. So I'm speaking from a, from an entrepreneur who's trying to get their business off the ground. Now imagine if you're an established or fairly, excuse me, established business that's trying to expand their business, right? You wouldn't be able to just rely on the IPC. Um, you'd have to create something around the, you know, the addressable market. So that's where, as you're saying, this, you know, the consulting service of Yannick would be great, but I don't think you can hold yourself hostage, um, to not being able to define a, a total addressable market to be able to create value. Um, I really believe that, um, you know, it'll, it's a luxury at this point in time and it'll get better. And I've got no doubt that eventually that'll be accessible and quantifiable. But at the moment, absolutely not. And I would not encourage anybody to not start a business because they can't quantify the market. And I mean, I've, uh, this, several people made this point that um, all the most successful tech companies in the world, um, at least at the moment, all of them at some point did not have an addressable market but they had an immediate paying customer, right? So that you can actually arrive at an addressable market if you go the route of being able to get someone that's willing to pay for your service as opposed to the other way around. And I think that in most cases, in our context, emerging markets, Africa, uh, in most cases, that's probably a better bet. Yeah, and it also occurs to me that um, uh, perhaps a lot more businesses need to take ownership of their role in shaping the market and also like educating the market to to its needs or uh, or perhaps maybe that's another thing that seems to be underestimated in, in, in on the continent. When you consider, for example, the the stop and start of e-commerce in, in, in you know pretty much all over the continent, not just we talk about Nigeria a lot, but, you know, South Africa a lot in terms of like how it's not performing to to, to expectation. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's just as much about like creating a great product, enthusing people about it, but also just uh, shaping a culture that will later consider your product indispensable. Yes, I have nothing to add to that. But okay, <laughs> okay cool. <laughs> well, so let's... <laughs> In passing, it might be worth mentioning that TechCrunch's Battlefield Africa uh, startup competition happened in Nairobi recently. Um, it's just one of many startup competitions that are becoming all the rage at the moment. Uh, you know, there's Demo Africa coming up. Uh, Seed Stars has been doing their thing forever. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I raise this is because, um, you know, the stories have emerged. The reports have emerged. And it's important for me to say, the, you know, the allegations have been made that uh, the, the folks at TechCrunch uh, pre- determined who would win this competition and really we're not talking a ton of money there's some money up for grabs and a trip for two to silicon valley uh, a south african owned kenyan based startup ended up winning i think it's called lori but um, people have alleged that you know they hadn't even applied and weren't even part of the the list of, of participants to begin with and then they came in you know back end after applications were closed and then it came over to win and the reason I raise this is because I think it's important to to start to confront the commercial interests that are, are vying to become thought leaders or nodes for our ecosystem. And I think we, it's important that we start to interrogate their role and and the power we give them in order to, to set themselves up as sort of arbiters for our ecosystem. Yes, and I think this lends itself back to this conversation we have about the relationship between uh, external venture capital and uh, the notion of aid, right? Because the the principles here is that there's money coming in from somewhere outside of our continent. It's being directed to specific places. And even in being directed to certain specific places, the agenda is being controlled around who gets that money. Um, and I think that's a self-perpetuating cycle um, that we are trying to break and challenge and speak about to say, if that's going to continue to happen in Lori, and I don't know much about Lori, so I won't speak about them in any any other light, but um, the context of this conversation, but but Lori has then received funding potentially outside of a, of a correct process and potentially based on nothing aside from this infrastructure that exists to support and perpetuate the fact that funding is going to be directed to where people external to our continent um, want it to be directed to serve their agenda, right? So um, without hopping on the, on, on the, on the matter and and obviously, at this point, a lot of it is speculation. Um, I think this is this is just illustrative of what we've been speaking about: um, is that if that money is going to continue to come in as a as a solution for us as a continent, there needs to be better management of how that is administered. There needs to be a more accountable way in which people that are bestowed the money or that win the money um, are able to be held accountable. Um, and I think ultimately, then we're going to be seeing the money being deployed to places where it can work really well. Um, but I think there are other ways to look at it. Um, and I think when you consider there's different approaches 
approaches to being able to fund startups, the focus that has been on you know, startups that are almost um, are out of the blocks, for lack of a better word, and need a slightly different funding approach to those that are starting from the bottom, the kind of money we're talking about, 25,000 US dollars, um, you'd argue that should be going somewhere else, right? And I, and, and um, to jump ahead a little bit, I spent a bit of time, um, I'm not, am I allowed to mention the, the, the Anzisha Prize? Um, I'm, I spent a bit of time coaching and mentoring um, some, some very young startups. MasterCard is partnered with LA, ALA to find Africa's youngest entrepreneurs. ALA being? African Leadership Academy. Um, to find Africa's youngest entrepreneurs, where $25,000 for me, um, as we were speaking about, should be given to those people who can use that to fail and fail quickly, as opposed to uh, you know businesses that are at the size of Lori that should be getting capital that, in my view, should be bigger than that, but should be achieving a lot more. Um, so the kitty that was given to, and, and, and I'll give you an example, at the Nzicha Prize, the youngest entrepreneur was a 15-year-old Nigerian girl. Average age, I think, must have been 19, 20 of the entrepreneurs that entered. And all of them actively engaging in commerce. Um, the winner, winner from last year made his first million dollars because he's been in agriculture. Um, and he's expanding into Togo. The winner from this year um, in a similar space. Um, and I'm going, that money's being directed to the right place to be able to give the right impact. Um, but also, because you're giving it to people that are actually doing things on the ground, and I found it quite refreshing that they weren't all being tech, uh, or won't have this kind of this tech um, 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 glorification, and they were going for basic things. When I say basic, they were going for fundamental uh, economic uh, um, uh, uh, or economy pillars like agriculture. I found that encouraging, and I found that if those funds are being directed to those kind of businesses at a younger age, it's probably a better use of the of, of, of the cash. Um, whereas if you've got them being directed to companies like Lori and guys that are almost out of the blocks, um, they then fall susceptible to this agenda that is usually around PR, um, to this agenda that's usually around uh, kind of maintaining the status quo. So just the observation from my side. But uh, uh, once again, all of it is speculation, but I think it plays very well into the narrative that we've been speaking about the last couple of weeks. I love the point you're making. Like, where do, where's the money matter most or where can it do the, the most good? I'm not here to preach about where investors should put them. And frankly, it's your money. You can put it where you like. Tech crunch. you can, you know, 25K. If you just want to hand it out, you want to fly over the continent and just throw, you know, dollar bills and just make it rain, whatever. That's up to you. I'm literally throwing them under the bus in this. And for a simple reason, not to embarrass them, not to be difficult or tough, but everyone's taking this opportunity to sort of try and position as we're all about Africa. We're all about connecting the continent. You know what I mean? And, and the truth is every so often we discover that actually they don't really care about us. At the end of the day, MJ had it right and maybe that's just something we need to, to start making peace with so that we we start getting smart about the workarounds necessary like startups maybe you need to think twice before you spend all this time and energy all the time and energy it takes to sort of apply for these startup competitions and, and chase this money angel investors maybe we need to start identifying the youngsters that musa was talking about and and start to make access to your first five grand, 10 grand, 15 grand, any relevant issue. So that by the time the startup founders Musa is talking about reach the age of, you know, the founders of things like Lori and, and, and some of the other, you know, startup founders that were at Battlefield Africa, by the time they reach that age, they're like three or four companies deep into like trial and error that's been funded by an ecosystem that supports trial and error so that we don't have to sort of waste our time and energy validating little competitions that, you know, giving away like pre-allocated peanuts. I don't know if, does that make sense? I love that. Pre-allocated peanuts to the monkeys. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> not, not to the monkeys. I mean, to, in this case, Lori Africa. So I suppose all I'm saying is that um, it's important that we hold to account anybody who comes to the continent in the name of empowering our ecosystem or giving it a boost or, you know, uh, giving us a leg up. Some of this is stuff we should be doing ourselves and, and ignoring completely. Um, and some of it is really stuff we should be calling out and going, listen, if you really want to help, this is what we need. This is the role you can play. I hear the terms. If you're not ready to play, please just take your 25K and your little competition and go away. I couldn't agree more, man. All right. So, yeah, that turned into a little rant. Um, but, yeah, there's a few more items we're talking about before we sh close off the show. <laughs> we're on a roll this week. Um, since our last show featuring our friend uh, and cryptocurrency superfan, Simon Dingle, uh, some interesting developments have occurred in the world of virtual money. Um, I'm just going to list off a few. Uh, of course, the, the list of countries banning initial coin offerings, ICOs, has grown. Um, 
what else? Uh, a new uh, Bitcoin exchange called Bitcoin Africa. That's Bitcoin with a K. Bitcoin.Africa has launched in Nigeria. This is despite the Central Bank of Nigeria banning local financial institutions from trading uh, in virtual currency. Uh, they did that some months ago. Uh, how's this for the other side of the coin, as it were? The State Bank of Mauritius now accepts Bitcoin and Ethereum as collateral. Now that's crazy. And they've, they've got a collaboration with a, a fintech company called Salt, which now allows them to have a, a lending platform, which allows people to use uh, their Ethereum and Bitcoin holdings as collateral for loans and credits. That's very interesting. Um, and then, of course, the American web performance and security company Cloudflare has declared CoinHive malware. They've decided to actually ban sites that run it. You know, you'll recall we calling out uh, Meme Burn as well as Showtime. And since then, a few other companies and platforms have been caught taking advantage of their uh, uh, their audience's uh, uh, CPU power to mine uh, Monero using uh, CoinHive. And now Cloudflare, one of the biggest sort of uh, web performance security companies in the world, saying, listen, um, this is malware. We're not going to tolerate any sites that do this. Very interesting. And you know what? I sort of view when I read, you know, when I read about the, the state bank uh, of Mauritius, because Mauritius is turning into this little hub for African startups. I mean, a lot of African startups are preferring to, to be domiciled there. I know you're in the in the process of, of actually registering your your company there. Um, does this development make it even more attractive, Mauritius, as a destination? Absolutely. I think we'll be seeing more um, coin-funded transactions. Vinny Lingham did the first ICO and raised a hell of a lot of money. Um, we know that Mauritius, for a number of reasons, is an attractive destination. I mean, from from you know from all the exits that we've seen with big startups uh, in the tech space here in South Africa, they've all eventually registered in Mauritius because of the, the favorable IP laws that really protect the technology. Um, but then, you know, I think it makes it really attractive if you're going to be in a place that's also quite progressive around how you get funding to interact with the rest of the world, because that becomes a challenge um, in closed economies. And even in South Africa, you know, potentially, arguably one of the better and easier landings into the African uh, continent. It's really difficult to get foreign funding into here without involving the state, uh, the state bank, etc., etc. So I think, yeah, great move from Mauritius's side. I think it further adds um, to the already compelling case that a lot of people have seen, you know, in terms of setting up their businesses there. And certainly from our perspective, it's something we'll explore. I mean, South Korea has gone ahead and banned initial coin offerings. Uh, they did so last month. They joined the likes of Nigeria, China, Kenya, even Namibia here on the continent. And uh, interestingly, it didn't affect the, the price of Bitcoin all that much. And it's also you know, curious to me that uh, despite sort of the, the Central Bank of Nigeria saying that banks aren't allowed to trade in virtual currency, I mean, it hasn't stopped a new exchange popping up sort of underlining the fact that policymakers might not realize just how little power they have over influencing whether or not this becomes a thing that um, the world adopts and uses quite readily. I mean, uh, on one hand, if I was a policymaker, I'd be worried about being left behind this trend towards the democratization of global finance on one hand, but at the same time, you can't just sort of stand by and allow, you know, a vulnerable public potentially get taken by companies that are calling ICO after ICO. And I mean, eventually one of them is going to be a bust, like a major bust. And, and whose problem is it then? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah. What do you make of all that? Yeah, I think, I think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a good argument that the, the, the Bitcoin um, revolution is, is a bubble. I think there is a lot of merit to say that it's unsustainable, the kind of rates of growth that we've seen from Bitcoin. Um, but I also think that the infrastructure required to support Bitcoin is not going to go anywhere. So regardless of whether the bubble bursts or not, I think it's something that we're going to have to make peace with. And therefore, this kind of closed approach to saying we're going to ban ICOs um, is definitely not the solution. I kind of liken that to at the invention of fire, people saying because fire can burn people, let's, you know, let's ban fire. Yeah, because it's almost the knee-jerk thing like um we need to protect our sovereignty let's ban icos we need to control our economy and and many times it's sort of we need to protect the public absolutely but the public still need to transact and send money to different places so. cheaper and faster and better than you know you guys have so far helped them do so correct so if you're not providing an alternative that makes sense at the consumer level it's something that it's, it's inevitable so i think it's just a closed approach and it's very knee-jerk um as i said i don't think uh kind of the infrastructure that's that's going into uh making sure that bitcoin remains will be will be taken about overnight i think it's just going to be a matter of when policy catches up and when organizations figure out the best way to um to be able to manage govern etc etc but it's something that we're not going to see going away anytime soon
Absolutely. And so we're going to close up with some interesting North African news. Uh, well, yeah, we'll actually touch on some yeah, Middle Eastern news, which, yeah, it's not quite Africa, but yeah, we'll talk about it as well. Um, it's encouraging news out of Egypt regarding their aspirations to join the global space race. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit late, but um, yeah, I mean, we, we encourage it nonetheless. Um, the Egyptian government has reportedly approved draft legislation to create a, a national space agency which will build and launch satellites from Egypt to, quote, serve development objectives. It will also apparently represent Egypt internationally in the field of space technology. And now it's worth mentioning that this all comes in the wake of Egypt already having for many, for many years, actually almost a decade, if not just over, um, a satellite company called Nilesat. They run communication satellites that are manufactured and put into orbit by other foreign operators. So this uh, announcement pointing to Egypt wanting to do a lot of that stuff themselves, develop you know their own competencies in the country. That's I mean, what's to hate? Exactly. So, and I wouldn't snigger at that either because I mean they, we all know that just being the first at something doesn't make you the best at it. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an Afro optimist, so I'm hoping that I'm going to watch that story kind of developed over the next couple of in a couple of months and years. But Having said that, I think Egypt, if anyone, is probably positioned to try and understand um, and to capitalize on that kind of knowledge and advance in science and technology based on their, purely based on their history. Um, Egypt itself being a historical and scientific um, almost kind of a hallmark when you look at history and, and, and kind of uh, ages gone by. So I think if that is anything to go by and them trying to reinvent themselves by launching a satellite and making um, kind of a firm play for the space, I think that's great. Um, there's also a lot of thinking happening at the moment, and we can probably go to it, through it in another podcast around this notion of Afrofuturism, um, which is a really fascinating study of the context of Africa in, in, in places like science and places like technology and places like uh, astronomy. Um, and I think, if anything, that complements the story of Egypt like a uh, hand in glove. But as I said, just because you're not the first doesn't mean you can't be the best. So I'm going to be rooting for Egypt and their uh, um, their exploits or endeavors. So yeah. I see the brand maven side of you just snuck into the show. Because I mean, yeah, it's, it's great PR, you have to admit. No, absolutely. And you got to find the story. Never wait is a great story. So as I said, I'll be rooting for them from my corner. <laughs> How's this for branding, though? Uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia bestowing citizenship to a robot named Sophia. Like, I mean, they couldn't you think of like an Arabic, you know, a decent Arabic name, with, you know, like what the heck? Of course, it's because it's not naming it for the for the Arabs. They're naming it for the rest of the world. So Sophia is uh, and hence why I introduced myself as Sophia. Um, so Sophia is kind of the first uh, uh, Arab, Arab is probably the first robot to have Arab uh, um, citizenship. So, so yeah, Saudi Arabian citizenship should be specific. Yeah, Saudi Arabian citizenship. And I think that follows a lot of um, media hype as well around Dubai also appointing the first state minister of artificial intelligence who happens to be only 27 year old. His name is Omar bin al-Saltan al-Olama um, and he's one of six new ministers that have been appointed. But I think it also states um, quite a clear intention in trying to understand the importance of artificial intelligence um, trying to figure out what that means for uh, for the for the, for the, um, the Emiratis and the, the UAE region, um, but also being deliberate around getting people that can think about solving those problems for the future. So, yeah, isn't Dubai behind the um, the imminent sort of beta testing of uh, flying shuttles? Correct. That and the drones, the police drones. So the the, the, the authorities in, uh, um, in, in in Dubai will be riding around on these hovercraft type things. And uh, so they ride at the forefront. I mean, the stuff that they're doing at the moment um, is making use of some of those, you know, billions of oil reserves. But uh, they're definitely painting a really exciting picture of the future, whether it's kind of creating cities in the middle of the desert to things like bestowing citizenship on uh, on robots. There's, so, there's a lot of stuff happening in that space which is good to watch. And of course, Saudi Arabia, no doubt, desperately wanting the, the spotlight off its geopolitical issues, uh, uh, you know, try, and, and of course, you know, riding the wave of allowing women to drive and reaching for democratic ideals, all of these things packaged very nicely into this robot, no doubt, who would be very nice to you if, if you, if you had an overhead conversation, I assume. Absolutely. Very well packaged and very strategic PR, but yeah, it's starting to come together, I think. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, a jam-packed show. We did warn you, Ask an African. Uh, here's where we tell you exactly what Ask an African is, is all about, because indeed this episode of the African Tech Roundup has been brought to you by Ask an African, our new standalone innovation right here at the African Tech Roundup uh, platform. We've been working on it for the last uh, several months or so. We've been part of the Jam Lab Accelerator program. 
which is in partnership with Wits University and Ryerson University in Toronto. And uh, we've already started beta testing it. And um, I'm sure at this point you want us to tell you a little bit about it. This is what we're doing. I said earlier that we're sort of trying to let you in on the magic of what we experience. We as you know, hosts on the show, as, as people who interact with dozens of the smartest individuals who are in, uh, in the trenches in, in, in Africa's tech scene or uh, directly involved from afar. And so the magic is this access to insight and understanding. And, you know, we get to test the nature and strength of the connections, the relationships that exist within our ecosystem to an extent that many, many other people aren't able to do. And so that's what we're leveraging um, in, in order to bring you Ask an African. We're leveraging our live human network, our insights database, which continues to grow um, thanks to the content we produce. And how are we wrapping this value up in a standalone proposition? Well, we're going to start offering private moderated roundtables. Uh, we later plan to scale that idea into a premium subscription-based question answering service that allows you to, from anywhere in the world, from any device in the world, send us a question and allow us to find you the best individuals to answer those questions what do you think Musa? you've you've obviously been in the trenches here with us um you've been our sounding board in many respects um thank you so much for playing that role here i mean aside from being uh, a co-host on this show you you're also a really good friend and just a, an all-around you know great strategic mind what do you make of what we're trying to do here man i think this is such a crucial thing for the the kind of precipice that we're at um, in relation to Africa and owning our narrative, um, I would really like for you also to speak to some of the elements of why uh, this this you know this kind of platform um, is going to be important because it solves um, for kind of this this middle where people are able to come into a space, um, actually access information in a hu more human centered way, um, and use that information to deliver output. So uh, I think from a you know from a brand perspective, having gone through a little bit of the journey with you, um, I'm certainly super excited about the problem that it's solving uh, and I think for the listeners at home it'll be great to just help them understand kind of the world in which you're fitting in as far as the you know the, the, the problems you're trying to solve but more importantly um, why and how that links back to the fundamental core of what you've been doing all this time so it feels like the foundation has been laid and this is kind of accelerating it we're doing what we do best which is moderating conversations we're, we're just taking them offline so people can be candid and free um, we're also allowing you to access the, the network we've We've built up it's a live network so it's not it's not folks we're going to go out and go find we know who's doing what we've secured access and and time with them and, and in a closed safe setting of up to you know three or four people including the moderator um we're able to have these discussions and and you can ask questions to understand the ecosystem to to its to its end and so to answer your question directly um what are the options out there in terms of someone trying to understand this ecosystem and, and act on their interest in it, right? Well, there's the free media, like stuff like this podcast and, and many other published content that you get for free out there. Um, it's, it's free events you could attend. It's independent efforts you can make to sort of connect with people. You know, you could subscribe to premium reports, you know, from the likes of PwC. And I mentioned them because... Uh, they're probably quite grateful they weren't uh, they haven't been <laughs> implicated in the Gupta leaks but yeah there's pretty great premium reports even from the likes of KPMG to be fair you know that you can access um to give you a better sense of sort of specific markets and, and, and nuances in that regard database access to uh, legacy information that might help you make better decisions for the future uh paid events many of them you know costing quite dearly to attend in order to meet the right people um then of course at the high end there's you know consulting services you can you can access, you know, you can get the likes of PwC or Reuters or whoever on retainer, for example. You know, Asoka Insights is a good, uh, and, and Kasi Insights are good local examples, homegrown examples of people you might actually get on retainer to keep you up to speed. Or you could just hire, you know, short-term freelancers to sort of excavate ideas for you and, and figure things out, have the conversations for you and report back, as it were. You, you talk about a missing middle that we feel is missing. Um, a lot of these solutions tend to be optimized to the point where they, they cut out the human element. And as it happens, you know, the human element when it comes to Africa and how we relate and we do business on the continent tends to be the most important thing in terms of understanding people's motivations and where they want to go and, and what might work because of soft issues you can't see and what the data will never tell you. And, and, and really the value that people get from listening to our podcast, um, it, you know, whenever we put it out there. Um, we need more of this, more of these sort of conversations need, uh, need to be had uh, at the right level with the right people 
as they're needed, you know, so quick, fast, ad hoc, and, and to the point. And so the, really that's the, the need we're looking to meet with our Ask an African offerings, where come to us to curate these discussions for you. Um, you'll get everything you've come to expect from our podcast, our, I don't want to call it irreverent, but really we are unaffiliated, we're independent. And that's the other thing about a lot of what's out there right now. There's, there, you know, it's a lot of the stuff out there is agenda driven or it's, it has like a specific enterprise focus or a specific transaction agenda. You know, there's not enough tailoring. Um, there are dated approaches to, to, to account for. There's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, again, the human element is often sacrificed at the altar of efficiency, you know what I mean? And optimization, you know, in terms of like extracting insight. And we're like, no, we, we're not about that. We've been about these values, independence, candor, insight, and network mapping from day one. This has been what we've been about. And so we're looking forward to a standalone product that allows us to leverage everything we've been able to build here. I know I've taken a while, but um, uh, we're still working on the elevator pitch. It's really, really fresh. And that's why we're really excited to, to bring it to you. And, and we hope it'll turn into something, you know, really worthwhile and something they'll buy into most importantly. I think that's fantastic. And I think you summed it up very well is that Ask an African is about independence, candor, network mapping. And that's a, that's a valuable thing for anybody that is trying to, you know, create value or understand value in our continent. Um, you know, it's without a doubt that those are things that they're going to need to have an understanding of. And, and secondly, um, being able to close the loop on a number of these conversations in a more human centered way. So I think, uh, big up to you, my brother. I've watched the journey. I've watched it unfold. And I think it's only the beginning. Um, but for all of you at home, I think, uh, that are interested in wanting to get in touch, please. Or on your bike. Or, yeah, or on your bike. Uh, <laughs> on your commute <laughs> um, get in touch um, inquire try and find out get more information because I really think um, as part of what we um, um, really advocate um, it's supporting endeavors like this so uh, once again I take my hat off to you and I say all the best brother man thank you so much Musa I really do appreciate it and to your point guys listen we are actively recruiting for our beta so if anything we've uh, we've said has touched a nerve or piqued an interest we want to hear from you you can be a startup founder a policy maker uh, uh, an investor uh, perhaps even an IT professional who's either actively involved in, in the African tech industry or um, interested in, in participating meaningfully we want to hear from you if you'd be interested in being part of our beta uh, give us a shout our email address is hello at africantechroundup.com that's hello at africantechroundup.com we can't wait to hear from you and so with that it's time for me to thank you Musa for being on the show as always always a huge value addition to have you on the show I always learn a ton from you in private and I'm so glad I get to share some of what I experience in private with you with all the you know with all our listeners around the world dude let's do it again really soon yep as always good to be here thank you for the invite and for all of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Absolutely. In the meantime, Africa, I'm Andile Masugu. Do take care. <laughs> <laughs>